In a fast-paced tech environment, the potential attack surface increases with each release and new app created. Detectify automates cutting-edge knowledge from trusted ethical hackers into the development pipeline for reliable application security. Go beyond the OWASP Top 10. Check your web apps for over 2,000 known vulnerabilities actively exploited in the wild, monitor subdomains for potential takeovers, and remediate security issues in staging and production. Learn more with a free trial at securityweekly.com forward slash detectify. Go hack yourself. By connecting to your code repository, Actrix generates a topology across your full stack to reveal risks so that you can harden your architecture. It also scans code for violations against compliance and security standards to enforce best practices. In addition, Actrix develops threat models using vulnerability feeds, IAM privileges, and other data to predict potential breach paths. Learn how easy it is to get started with Acturix at securityweekly.com forward slash Acturix. Application security is hard when security is separated from your DevOps workflow. Security has traditionally been the final hurdle in the development lifecycle. Iterative development workflows can make security a release bottleneck. With GitLab, security is built into the CI-CD process. Every code commit is automatically scanned for security vulnerabilities in your code and its dependencies. Results are delivered to the developer in their native workflow for rapid remediation. Learn how GitLab enables DevSecOps. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash GitLab for a 30-day free trial. Welcome back to Application Security Weekly. I'm your host, Mike Shima, joined by Matt Alderman and John Kinsella. Would you like to have all of your favorite Security Weekly content at your fingertips? Do you want to hear from Sam and Andrea when we have upcoming webcasts and technical trainings? Have a question for one of our illustrious hosts, someone from the Security Weekly team, or wish you could hang with the Security Weekly crew and community? Subscribe on your favorite podcast catcher, sign up for the mailing list, and join our Discord server to stay in the loop on all things Security Weekly. Visit securityweekly.com slash subscribe. In our October 22nd technical training, we will provide a first look at a new free resource that delivers thousands of remedies as a service to bridge the gap between vulnerabilities found and vulnerabilities fixed. On October 28th, learn how to build an integrated security platform in our webcast at 3 p.m. Eastern. Visit securityweekly.com slash webcast to see what we have coming up or visit securityweekly.com slash on demand to view our previously recorded webcasts. Uh, and this brings us to the, the, the news of the week, which I was very, very, very happy to see how on theme everything was for, for Halloween, um, especially since we can party like it's almost 1999 um, because we have a ping of death. Um, John, I think you perked up for, for this one. Want to want to introduce this to us? I, I don't know if I'd say perked up. Um, <laughs> yeah, I... <laughs> yeah, you can tell from the chuckles. Fell down, um, dying. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it's so. Our, I think this has probably got a lot of attention by now. Our, our, our buddies up here in Redmond um, have another network stack issue, this time in uh, IPv6 uh, ICMP. So um, I, I saw the headline and started looking at it and and swore a little bit. You know, in my comment as I said before about how do you spend a billion dollars a year on infosec and still have buffer overflows in your ICMP stack? But, um, uh, you know, Matt, I think you, excuse me, Mike, you went into a little bit deeper and actually uh, looked at some of the details around this. I, I stopped when I got that far, and I'm like... <laughs> well, I know, we, poor John. we actually covered part of this on ESW last week. And look, apply the patch. I did it right before the show. It took almost an hour for the stupid thing to reboot and get back to normal, okay? So I made it. Um, so first piece. Uh, 
And do, the workaround is crazy because we were talking about this last week. They're like, yeah, just basically turn off IPv6 and Windows. Do you know how much stuff in the new Microsoft Azure stack in O365 yeah. is dependent on IPv6? You can't just turn it off. So, and that's where it is, I guess, two things. One, it is nice to see that people perhaps are even using IPv6. So, um, you know, that's one of those long time comings if we, when we can measure, you know, protocols in decades that we've been waiting for universal adoption. Um, that's, probably why it took say, so, yes? that's probably why it took so long <laughs> just to find us. <laughs> That's Probably. right. Needed somebody to use it. But I will say, you know, to, to John's point, um, I would I want to sort of go through the, the, the thought exercise. Well, we'll hear thought experiment that if this were back in the 1996, 97, when we first heard about a large packet attacks, basically the original ping of death, um, that this kind of stack overflow could have been much worse. So, for example, it's not it, so far. It's only identified to be a DOS, which can be pretty painful depending on what you know Windows-based system is getting DOS, especially if it's your AD service. But this wasn't trivially turned into an RCE. And I think that is a little bit thankful to, and fingers crossed I'm going to be proven right here over the next couple of weeks, is that um, you know, stack integrity. We're talking just in the previous uh, section with uh, Taylor about control flow analysis. There's also control flow integrity. So hopefully a lot of the stack guards, a lot of the capabilities that Microsoft has been spending their time on to recompile a lot of this code with such things is that that has protected us from being worse. So um, I guess I'll go through that, not to say that necessarily, well, yes, it could be better, but I'll just take that viewpoint of it could have been a lot worse. Mm. I just got an idea. Um, remember that uh, that 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 toy we were talking about last week that might end up with people going to the ER because parts of their body were caught in it. Imagine if that was running Windows 10 IoT Core. No, nobody. So if like anyone out there in the audience like hears of like sex toys that are being powered by Windows, tell us about it. <laughs> There are researchers focused on this area, so hopefully, yes, we in in this episode we're going to get foreshadowing, get into some more hardware. Um, but before we do, um, yes, let's find out where where all the other places that IPv6 is, and um, we're also going to go into speaking of um, here. Here's a segue. Speaking of full disclosure, um, John, <laughs> you 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 um, are watching that uh, mailing is quite a bit, and you came across a, a bit of an interesting one that that stood out for you, I think. I did. Um, I did a few actually. Let's see. So we had the um, the sim one, uh, sim and container D, I believe, or both of those. Yeah, we had the sim. two yeah. of them. Um, so I'll start with the sim one. Q Radar, um, competitor of mine from many many years ago. Glad to see they're still alive and out there and part of IBM. Um, yeah, and, and this is again, a, a, you know, a, one of our themes from last week. We we're talking about security to tools with security vulnerabilities in them, and here's another. So. Curator, for those who don't know, it's another sim product out there like ArcSight or, um, I guess, Splunk, depending on how you think about it. But um, one thing's actually, the first thing I want to talk about is what I just did is describe what this tool is. So as I was looking at this, one of the things we see in, in security vulnerabilities out there are in vulnerability disclosures or announcements. Frequently, they'll just say, hey, Curator had a buffer overflow or um, a, a parsing issue with with this one thing, and and we've patched it, and you need to upgrade to this version. Well, what was that thing? Is it running in my in my 
environment? Do I need to Google it? You know, what's the right version of it? What is this? So I'm a big fan of disclosures that actually have a little, you know, few sentences up top that say, this is what this thing is. Um, so props to these guys for doing this. But really what's going on here is an authenticated user can call one of the vulnerable methods um, and cause a servlet. So this is actually a client-side issue in the SIM client in a browser, I believe, uh, servlet, so our buddy Java. Um, but basically there was a way to deserialize, to get the server to deserialize arbitrary objects which you'd be pushing back across the wire. Uh, and then that would give you the ability to do things that you shouldn't be doing on this on the SIM server side of things. So interesting. Um, you know, I don't think we've seen too many of these uh, um, deserialization from the, the Java school of things for the last six or 12 months, or at least are not in my memory right now. So it's it's interesting to see that type of issue still around as, as we still use some of those older languages. Yeah, that's what this thing that stood out for me too, is that we saw uh, three or four years ago, I want to say, the Java deserialization was yeah. absolutely in vogue, hopped on to the OWASP top 10 um, updated list for the year, and they haven't seen too much. Um, so yeah, so it was nice to see this and that little combination of JSON as well as to, to Java. Um, type of deserialization attack. Uh, also, a tie into the authentication um, broad topic we were talking about in the in the first session last week was this other container D um, vulnerability. And um, don't know if there's anything particular you wanted to uh, note about this, John. Yeah, I, I meant to do a little more research in this one over the weekend. So um, maybe folks can chime in as as they know um, here at Discord or YouTube or wherever. Um, so specific version of container D 12x, 1.2.x, um, uh, container D's have had for a while the ability. So let's, let's break it down here. So container D runs your containers on a server, you know, people think Docker, but this is one of the pieces, um, underneath the hood. Um, a Docker image is made up of something called a manifest. So that basically says these are the layers in your, in your Docker image. And the Docker image is a, um, or a running container is usually a hierarchical file system. So um, you want to pull down an image and actually go and run it. So layer by layer, you want to be able to actually go and get the layers and download them one at a time. This saves you from having to um, download a big old thing every time if just one part of that image changes. But one of the specs in there as part of that manifest is you're able to actually specify not just the, the image or the layer shot to download, but also, hey, why don't you go ahead and get it from this particular server over here? Um, this is used in particular, I know one example this is used is by our friends in, in, in Redmond um, for the Windows images. They wanna make sure that, that uh, the base layer isn't floating around. But uh, someone figured out that what you're able to do is if you're able to control where that um, container D on your local server is downloading that image from, uh, where that URL is for that layer, excuse me, uh, you're able to actually, if you're able to control that server and throw a HTTP 401, uh, you're able to then say you're basically saying, "Hey, it's unauthorized. You're not able. You're not supposed to be doing that." The response from Container D in this particular version was to go ahead and throw over your your credentials. Uh, and what really caught my eye about this in the write-up was, um, and I quote: "In some cases, this may be in the users." the user's username and password for the registry. In other cases, this may be credentials attached to the cloud virtual instance, which can grant access to other cloud resources in that account. That's the part I wanted to go and figure out what exactly is going on there. So if your container D for any reason has credentials for the rest of your cloud environment, um, that that sounds all sorts of crazy balls, right? So. Um, the the issue itself is bad. Um, it it's sort of it's it's interesting, but you know it's basically tricking someone to send your credentials over. But depending on what those credentials are, this could be uh, make someone a very unhappy camper. 
Yeah, it, it definitely. That, that that was an area that, that highlighted for me the idea of um, the, the two things. One, just what, what are the credentials you're using? Are you running, you know, the, to be a little bit facetious, are you running as root and or, you know, the, that metaphorical equivalent for your cloud services? And it also kind of wanted me to go on a small soapbox, too, about just authentication schemes and mechanisms and the idea of what can we do better about a challenge response. And that's where I love going back to the idea of WebAuthM so we could have actual cryptographic anchors to figure out, should I, you know, here's a cryptographically signed um, assertion of the domain I'm about to visit. And should I send my credentials to this domain or not? So I think there's some really cool ways that the future of authentication could improve. Um, but clearly, we're not there yet if we're just saying, hey, 401, please give me your creds. And those creds are getting sent across. So I mean, um, that, still, still plenty of work. That, at least to me, when I first think about it, sounds like basic auth, yeah? I mean, I guess it wouldn't have to be. But Wouldn't have yeah. to be. But yeah, that's pretty much a, a, a basic auth, yeah. Maybe so I wanted to... Before we keep going, I want to throw in one more thing on this to our listeners. You know, the last few episodes we've been throwing in these, um, we've been talking a lot about vulnerabilities. I'd love to get some feedback from folks. Do you want us to be talking about vulnerabilities, like what's actually out there and how do you deal with it? Or would you like us to be looking more at the tools or the DevSecOps side of things? So if anyone has any complaints or, or, or um, congratulations or something, we'd, we'd love some feedback around that. That's true. And so, and listeners, stick around because we do have some architecture discussions near the end here. But until then, we do have a couple more vulns to focus on. In this case, let's shift over to that hardware side of things because um, um, I'll start with the, the Bluetooth because, again, I, I do love that there is yet more um, vuln branding that can start with BL to riff on uh, Bluetooth. So in this case, the uh, Bleeding Tooth, with great October Halloween type of title. Um, but again, this was just a, um, a zero-click RCE, as it's been described, if for a uh, adjacent devices. And I think that, you know, I, I don't know if there's too much to get into here in, in technical details, other than I do want to highlight, and I think I put it into the show notes, what was really nice here from the Google security researchers is that they also linked to the git commit where this uh, vulnerability was first introduced. So from a sort of educational aspect, if you want to either just learn what insecure and secure code looks like, you could look and see what changed from the original commit to the one where the fix was applied. But as well, if you want to be testing your own SAST tools or your other type of um, application security testing tools, testing them on these types of scenarios, saying here was a Bluetooth vulnerability, can my tool find it? Can I, you know, build that that abstract syntax tree, grep for this type of pattern, look for it elsewhere? Um, it'd be great if we could do a similar thing with IPv6. Obviously, in this case with the Microsoft, we don't have access to the source code, but here in the Bluetooth, we do. So um, that was sort of that educational aspect I wanted to highlight this one. Yeah, I thought this was... Um... It, it's interesting because, you know, I usually think of the Bluesia stack um, I, I I don't think I've ever personally. I know I know next year is the year for Linux and a desktop, but um, <laughs> for the last twenty years, where it hasn't been, I don't run Bluetooth as a client on Linux. I use it when I'm doing pen testing or researching. So it's interesting to see a, um, a a utility suite which I'm using. I'm used to using to poke at other folks. Suddenly having a a, a weakness that people can poke at me with it. So thought that was interesting. 
it was interesting. And this one at least does look like it can be a, um, a software update for the kernel or the kernel module, if I'm remembering correctly. So this is one of those Bluetooth phones that actually looks like it will be able to be patched and um, relatively quickly rather than relying on something that's a read-only ROM that basically you have to wait till the hardware goes away, which is much like this uh, T2 research that uh, was in the news this last week by a team from um, called uh, uh, a team called T T8012. They named themselves after this um, secure, basically this little system on a chip um, inside recent. I want to say back to 2014 or 2016 um, MacBooks. That basically is the chip that runs that um, uh, the, the the touch bar essentially. And in this case, they found a way to um, put this, uh, put the device into device firmware update, and then basically hook into this chip and muck about with it. Now, a couple things. One is from a threat modeling perspective, and that's, I think, whereas for me, the way that I was approaching this particular um, uh, vulnerability is that you do need physical access to the depth to the, the the laptop to the device and it doesn't immediately enable you to get to decrypt the file vault so if you have your laptop you have file vault enabled um, you're still pretty good um, what the what the researchers point out here though is that there's still a good potential for it to brute force the passphrase that's used to protect that um, so this is a good aspect and I do have um, a couple other notes in here that are just some really good descriptions and educational uh, blogs, just the thought process behind the um, research that went into attacking this um, secure ROM into this T2 chip. And um, what was the other thing I was thinking about there, too? Um, I forgot my notes. While I look at that matter, John, what, what do you think I, about I, this? I can talk while you, while you gather that thought there. So, um, and I think we talked about this recently, possibly with some of the Intel stuff. So one of the things here, when you when you bake your firmware in, oh yeah, I think I was talking about an IoT thing, but when you bake your firmware in to the degree that um, to reflash that device, to put that in air quotes for people on the podcast, um, if you go, if you basically sort of, you know, cut off the, the, I don't know, I'm losing my, my analogies myself, but if you put yourself in that place where you can't reflash it, um, you got to be very, very careful. And it's super difficult to do. I'm not saying this is an easy thing to, to screw up. Um, but so basically everything I've seen about this over the last week or so now, um, you ain't fixing your existing Mac, whether that's a, a, a Mac mini or a, a, an MVP or what have you. So one of the things I'm curious about right now is, will they have this, will we have a T3 for um, uh, the ARM Macs coming out in the next few months? Or, or how are they going to deal with this? Yeah, that that's a great yeah great question because clearly we'll, we'll you know we'll get a T three um, all the way if I forget my Terminator movies all the T one thousand but the um, I think the other thing I was I, the, the other aspect I want to bring this up here as well is that here is this type of chip this type of capability is one of the root anchors for the secure boot process so as we start to yeah. talk about cloud services or even just our, our handheld devices, call them your, your iPhones, your Androids. Um, a lot of them have these anchors to these secure chips. So in this case, for example, a T2 would be responsible for proving kernel extensions as the operating system is loading. So if you can basically bypass the signing or if you can you can get in your own malicious kernel extension, that's a lot of ownership you have over this system now. So it's one of those things to understand in your threat modeling and when we're getting into these type of perimeterless architectures, zero trust architectures, where it's the device is trying to attest, yes, I 
have a high degree of confidence that I've booted up securely with the operating system and the software that I was expected to. And then here is my the identity of my end user. If we start to erode some of the confidence in there, we have to worry a little bit about what other mitigating controls can we have in place for this. Yeah, people might not, it, they might not be able to crack um, uh, the encrypted file system with this, but if you're able to put a, a key logger in, you're, you've pretty much got it, right? So, yeah, it, it's interesting because I got the new MacBook Pro and I'm, I'm fighting with my USB-C cables and here, this part of that cable <laughs> was, was one of the ways to exploit uh, this vulnerability. So I'm sitting there going... I wonder if that was actually an Apple cable I plugged into my Thunderbolt displays the other day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. And that's what's fun. So speaking of chips, chips are everywhere because um, you your that USB-C cable may even have its own chip in it. And as Matt is being um, not overly paranoid, um, a little bit justified in, you know, what can that cable do to his system? And that's where I also wanted to pull in some research from uh, NCC Group that was doing some um, basically old school voltage glitching against a uh, media uh, MediaTek. Um, chip itself. And this was interesting to me. Once again, it's a great write-up. So if you want to learn a little bit more about some of the concepts and tooling around hardware testing, great write-up. And in this case too, um, as I mentioned, it's voltage glitching. So in the case that we were just talking about with the T2 chip, that's playing around with some of the um, you know, playing around with the signing, playing around with the what the flaws within the firmware. So code that's been miswritten. In this case, this is actually how the hardware itself is resilient against voltage spikes. Um, and they were demonstrating that this particular chip wasn't resilient enough, and therefore it could be basically um, glitched, to, to use the term of art, into um, bypassing the secure boot ROM process. So again, this isn't um, the, these, these capabilities or these types of attacks are going to be relatively the, the attacks themselves are, are pervasive and possible against these hardware, against these chips, whether they're successful or not. Um, that's the more important thing. And we haven't seen them being, you know, uh, overly um, successful. But once they are, this is the problem with can you upgrade it or not? Can you flash that firmware? Or is it honestly intentionally read only? Yeah, this looks like fun. So. It is, as you said, you know, old school, our older school, the the voltage glitching, but it's been on sort of a, a comeback this year. It's one of the sort of the, the sexy, trendy things for a hardware hacker to be doing. Um, I haven't done any of it. It's something I'd love to do. So um, I, I'm, I'm going to have to give this particular post a, a pretty close look and see if I can find some time. It's been 30 plus years since I've had fields. So <laughs> <laughs> it's way past my skill set these days. Come on, let's go play with the oscilloscope. Yeah, right. right. Exactly. We used to in fields class back in the late '80s. <laughs> <laughs> always, always good to dust off the the electrical engineering side of of things. Mm. Um, one other quick comment here. We've been talking about authentication, just perimeter list. And um, uh, John, you had mentioned the, the Q-Radar, I think the, the SIM category of vulnerability. There was also just another vulnerability in a SonicWall VPN device. And again, here, this wasn't so much I, to dive into what the particular vulnerability was, but in the idea of 
how much how many of our security tools are growing our attack surface and i think too one of the things that we could possibly talk about maybe in more depth in one of the the future um segments is about that idea of zero trust and how much do we need a, the, a classic vpn versus let's just have everything over https and that's possibly giving us the type of attestation that we need in terms of who's the user identity that's visiting us and are we cryptographically secure from intermediation or eavesdropping attacks? Yeah. Yeah, I think we're going to see, you know, obviously VPN's been hot because of all the remote workers. But, you know, my point is, when do we move away from the VPN, to your point, Mike, is if we were doing everything as HTTPS, do we really need a VPN at that point? Do we need this single concentrator kind of bottleneck to connect all of our users or can we connect securely in a distributed way? Uh, that's where Paul and I like to joke about the new sassy market from Gartner, right? That kind of secure edge uh, environment. But I think we will move there. I think what we're, what we're seeing right now with the pandemic is going to force us to move into some, some of those directions anyways. Yes, and what we've also seen with the with the pandemic is a lot of people using video chat quite a bit, and um, Zoom, of course, is one of the ones that we've talked about on the show for um, a, a couple times um, because it was notoriously around uh, March, April, a little bit earlier this month in the news for a lot of application security flaws that they were dealing with. Um, but in this case, in the spirit of not just focusing on flaws, but also focusing on let's build something secure, um, they've introduced end-to-end -end encryption which I think is pretty good. And so oh, they, I, in the show notes, we have linked to the white paper that they published when they first announced this is what our end-to-end -end encryption is going to look like. Here is, you know, here is our model. As well as importantly, here's some of the trade-offs you get because encryption doesn't come for free when you're talking about um, monitoring or anti-abuse or um, things like that. And so, so this is some pretty interesting aspects to think about. And so there's both the, the, the Zoom specifically, we could focus on as well as I pulled in um, a signal app. So again, um, from Whisper Systems, they published the protocol as well as the implementation in C as well as some reference implementations in Rust and Swift for their LibSignal protocol. And that's of interest to me too for, and hopefully of interest to listeners, if they want to look at not only the idea of you know, what does it take to roll your own crypto? Not that I'm saying do that yourself, design a protocol, but look at how a protocol has been designed and adopt it because you can see what, in this case, um, how Zoom approached this, as well as what Whisper Systems approached from LibSignal, how do they figure out the key distribution? How do they figure out who should be trusted parties? How do they figure out what if somebody is just monitoring all of the encrypted communications for all time, and then eventually later on, they get a decryption key, do we have forward secrecy or not? So there's a lot of interesting aspects here that I think are really neat to dive into. Neat. I, I think and, said um, the other thing I will point... <laughs> It's encryption. Yeah, it's way over my head. Sorry, Matt. Yeah, we saved it for the end so you could log, log off early. But um, <laughs> one of the things that no, I did, I, I will go ahead, John. I, I think what's actually interesting around here, this is super cool that they did this. Um, and, you know, everything you're talking about, the, the stuff in Signal, a lot of us use it. Um, we depend upon it for a lot of stuff we're doing. Don't want to go into politics, but, you know, we've got. I believe it's the five eyes or seven eyes. Um, the the various governments, large governments around the world, are are again attempting to try and um, crack encryption um, 
to try and, uh, you know, be able to get their fingers into this and see what people are talking about, which I understand the value of. But um, something for people to keep on their mind, whether they're for or against that. Um, and, and then, you know, my, my two thoughts on that and all of this stuff is, is you know, it's pretty hard to make math illegal. So um, it's I, I, I'm happy to do it. Guys are doing this. I want to see more of it. I'm happy that they're actually picking a, um, you know, it's like I said before, when we talked about encryption. It's my eyes roll into the back of my head, but that's because I want to do what they did here, which is use an open source reference protocol. Um, so kudos to them for doing that as well. Kudos to them. And um, hopefully, rather than just focusing on the, the mathy and encryptiness of it to, to make up words, also, I, I, that's why I did br want to bring in that idea of the threat modeling and, and abuse scenarios, because it was back in, um, uh, in in July, Firefox, Mozilla was saying Firefox Send is going to have to be on pause. And then back in September, they said, ah, it's now on official stopped. It's gone. And that was because it was being, so Firefox Send, if you're not familiar with it, was basically basically a um, essentially a point-to-point -point encryption um, for sending securely email or data between two two people um, but it was being abused to uh, to deliver malware um, and so of course if you have an end-to-end -end encrypted system and you aren't able to do something as simple as scan for viruses you know scan for malware do content inspection for um, uh, abuse material other or you know whether it's photos whether it's just um, you know text things like that so there are particular trade-offs here in addition to the points that um, John was making about five eyes and th there's also a document that I linked to from how whatsapp implemented their um, uh, signal protocol and some of the, the the also some of the things that they considered in terms of these abuse scenarios. So that's what I think is really interesting is that we can still have from a product security perspective how are we going to use encryption as well as what does it mean when we introduce encryption and do we lose some particular capabilities that are in fact useful and protective for our for our developers or for sorry for our end users and what are the trade-offs going to be? So those are rich conversations to have I think rather than just um, the Yep, AES, this particular mode, here's our ratcheting <laughs> protocol and um, forward secrecy and all the things that can make uh, poor, poor Matt uh, uh, eyes roll. Um, and also, you know, on this, um, I, I think you just said something really interesting there around the operational aspects of this. Um, you know, okay, you want to do end-to-end -end encryption, cool. If you're a uh, that software vendor um, either trying to, con well, either you're an IT shop that's trying to um, see what your users are doing from a DLP point of view, or you are a, um, a vendor that's writing something that wants to use end-to-end -end encryption. How do you do troubleshooting of that? Um, you know, so where is that encryption termination endpoint? Do you really encrypt straight all the way through to disk or memory or what have you? Or are you, do you have somewhere in there where you have some sort of tap that allows you to, to do things? And, and, you know, most people will say the answer is don't put a tap in, but some folks will want to troubleshoot at some point. So it's it's there's lots of things to think about around this. Lots of things to think about. And so that's the homework, everyone who's listening or, or hanging out with on, on the Discord. Let us know, would you like to see a lot more focus on these types of phones? Um, bring in some more tools, because actually we haven't talked about tools in, in quite a while. In, in addition to talking about architecture and secure designs, like we're talking about here with end-to-end -end encryption or the, um, uh, the the cache that we were talking about, cache designs that we were talking about last week in, in Google's um, uh, Chrome. So let us know, send us some feedback, as well as go watch some horror movies uh, because we're going to, because I want to say 
I messed up my segue there. So we're doing this live, so no one knows um, how we're going to fix this and recover. Other than I want to say thank you to Matt. Thank you to John for joining me. Thank you to everyone listening and joining us. We're going to see you next week on Application Scarecurity Weekly. 